Well, it happened. Um, it happened. My, like, worst fear. A grievous error was made in my teaching last week. And when you're talking about stuff like this, it's very important that no mistakes are made. And I made one. And it's gone out on YouTube. It's gone out on podcast, and who knows where else. So first things first, I need to humble myself before you this morning and tell you that I taught you the wrong Latin. I had you going, though, didn't I? You thought, oh, where are we headed? I called it the, the, the edge, the limbus partum, I called it, the place where the harrowing of hell, and they say that's where the fathers went, was the limbus partum. That means the edge of delivery. Like, postpartum is after delivery. The limbus partum is the edge of delivery. The limbus patrum is the edge of the fathers. So now, we've fixed that. Now, I'm going to settle way down today so that I don't mess up any more Latin. Because it's really important. My mom was looking at me like, what is he getting ready to do? What is he getting ready to say? We talked last week about Abraham's bosom, Luke 16, a place called Abraham's bosom. And I asked, at the end of that, I asked this question, what was the point of Yeshua's parable? And it was a parable, and we talked about that. And I suggested to you that it had very little to do with the final state of the wicked. That although most of, of theology, most of, of Christendom has somehow want, looks at that as the definitive word, I said there might be something else we should look at. And, and, you know, most of what he said about the afterlife was well established in Jewish theology prior. So it wasn't really something new. This is all by review. But that he implicitly signed off on some things by using the parable. You remember this? We talked about some of those things. And I'm not going to go back into all that. But in order to determine... To answer my question, what was the point? We need to rely on our best friend in biblical interpretation. We're going to invite our best friend into the room and help learn. What do you think our best friend for biblical interpretation might be? Context. The context of the Bible. Now, understanding the original languages might also be a really good, it is a really good friend to have, but context helps us a whole lot. So we need to assess this parable in context. First century Jewish audience quiz. Who were some of the groups that were in Yeshua's audience? I'll give you a start. Pharisees. Who else? Sadducees. Who else? Essenes, good. Zealots, we got the main answers. Herodians, there are other people. A very diverse audience that Yeshua was talking to. Okay? Now, there's this, this parable is not over. Okay? We covered a good bit of it, and I left you with a little sort of teaser, but he says to him, 
the rich man is asking him to send Lazarus back and, and, and talk to his brothers. And can he give first? He says, can you give me a drink? My mouth is on fire. You know, so we sort of know there's some 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 uh, symbolism going on here. But Abraham said, sorry, can't do it. And there's this wide chasm between us to which the rich man responds in verse 27. He said, if that is the case, my father, I ask of you, send him laser to my father's house for I have five brothers. Let him testify to them. So they do not also come to this place of suffering. Avraham said, they have Moshe and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Remember, we talked about this. They have the Tanakh. They have the Old Testament. They know what they should do. He said, no, Avraham, my father. But if one of the dead comes to them, then they will repent. He said to him, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not listen even if one revives from the dead. Now, in terms of context, the historical context, Pharisees and Sadducees, we've talked a lot about what the Pharisees believe. Most of what we've talked about are the things that the Pharisees taught. Of the things we've talked about in terms of immortal soul, reward and punishment after life, um, oral, rabbinic traditions, how much of that did the Sadducees believe? Zero. Absolutely zero. The Sadducees believed none of these things. Abraham's bosom, forget about it. Immortal souls, none of it. They allege that none of it was taught in the Torah. This was exclusively the realm of oral tradition. And the Sadducees completely rejected it. In other words, these words might sound familiar to you. Sola Scriptura. You know what that is? That's Martin Luther and the Protestant, the five sole of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. If it ain't in the Bible, I don't believe it. So the Sadducees sort of had this thing. Now, how relevant might it be contextually if Yeshua, I mean, of, if Abraham is speaking to a Sadducee? In other words, that the rich man is a Sadducee. You see the connection? He didn't believe any of it. None of it. And so the, the, the um, brother says, no, go back and tell them. Go back and tell them what, that they should believe these things. It's all real. It's really happening now. And Moses says, sorry, buddy. They have the written Torah. They don't need any. They don't need you think they're going to believe any of this other stuff, these man-made traditions? Now, there's a lesson in that. Actually, for Messianic Judaism today, there's a lesson in that. Because people are so very quick to reject any type of oral tradition or teaching or anything else that comes from Judaism. Sola Scriptura. I eat a certain way biblical kosher. I reject all that the rabbis ever said, man-made traditions. Yeshua said they were bad. No, actually, doesn't actually work that way. So there's a little word of caution before you just automatically throw everything out like a Sadducee. And this idea, this example, there's absolutely no way we could ever know that this guy is really a Sadducee. In historical context, I mean, uh, scholars say, ah, don't worry about it. Don't even get into that. But I wanted to get into that just to tell you that little tidbit. That sometimes it's worth listening to other Jewish sources than just what you might read in the Torah and have absolutely no idea what you're actually reading. Okay? Back to it. Sorry. 
There are so many lessons in this parable if we're listening. Some are obvious and particular to the subject matter of the afterlife. We've already learned Abraham can't intercede. Okay? There is in this place a corrected world. It's called an upside down world in rabbinic tradition. According to this from the rabbis, Rabbi Yosef, the son of Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi, became ill and fell into a trance. When he recovered, his father asked him, What did you see? I saw an upside down world, he replied, where those on top are underneath and those underneath are on top. Reb Yeshua said, Reb Yehoshua said, My son, you have seen a true world. What does that mean? It means that this is an explanation of a near-death experience. And he went and saw, and his dad said, what do you see? And he said, the last shall be first, basically. That's the way Yeshua said it. It's an upside-down world. And we know that from the parable that we see that the rich man had everything he wanted in this life, didn't he? And the poor beggar had nothing. And now the poor beggar sits in paradise and the rich man sits in Sheol or Gehenna. There is, that is a very, very prevalent theme in rabbinic literature in Yeshua's teachings, isn't it? Care for those underprivileged. There is a Luke commentary, uh, New Testament commentary by an author, Gildenhois, I think that's how you say his name. But here's what he said. Jesus related this parable not in order to satisfy our curiosity about life after death, but to emphasize vividly the tremendous seriousness of life on this side of the grave. Do you hear that? It's really important. Jesus, so, so I'll read it again. Jesus related this parable not in order to satisfy our curiosity about life after death, but to emphasize vividly the tremendous seriousness of life on this side of the grave. Any parable analysis, any discussion of the words that Yeshua speaks in parable must use context, right? So let me read you, because those are the ends, that's the end of Luke 16, let me read you what is in Luke 16 before we get into the parable of the rich man. Okay? This is Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, There was a rich man, and he had a manager over his house whom people slandered to him, saying that he was squandering his possessions. He called to him and said, What is this that I heard about you? Give an accounting of your management, because you will not be able to be my manager any longer. The manager said in his heart, What will I do if my master takes the management from me? I'm not able to hoe. I'm too ashamed to go door to door. I know what I will do so that I may be taken into their houses if I am removed from my management. He called to every one of the people with whom his master had a claim. He said to the first, how much are you indebted to my master? He said, 100 of oil, bought of oil. He said, quickly, take your bill, sit and write 50. To another, he said, how much are you indebted? And he said, 100 core of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. The master praised the manager of the wrongdoing, since he behaved so cleverly. For the sons of this world are more clever in their generation than the sons of light. Now listen to this. Verse 9. 
I also say to you, Yeshua talking to his disciples, I also say to you, purchase friends for yourselves with mammon of wrongdoing. Have you ever read this and really paid attention to what this is saying? I also say to you, purchase friends for yourselves with mammon of wrongdoing, so that when it is finished, they will take you into eternal dwellings. One who's faithful with just a little is also faithful with much. One who does wrong with just a little also does wrong with much. Thus, if you're not faithful with mammon of wrongdoing, who will entrust you with what is real? And if you're not faithful with what belongs to others, who will give you what is yours? No servant is able to serve two masters, for he will hate one and love the other, or he will cling to one and despise the other. You are not able to serve both God and mammon. The Prushim, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things and ridiculed him. He said to them, okay? He said to them. He was speaking to his disciples about the first part, about using the mammon of wrongdoing, whatever the heck that means, which I'll tell you. And then he switches because the Pharisees are listening to him. And it says, these particular, not all, this is not the, the Jewish money slander line that people love to use. I'm going to Jew you down. Don't ever say that. Don't ever say that. It is not. It's a southern idiom. It's, it's, it's a bad thing to say. Don't ever say that. Now, these Pharisees were lovers of money. And Yeshua starts talking to them at this point. And he says other things. You're justifying yourselves before man, but God knows your hearts and all these things he says. And then he goes into the rich man parable. So that's a lot of reading. But what do you hear over and over in this chapter? What's it about? Money. It's about money and wealth and using it in a particular way. That's not complicated, right? You, you can hear that. And he says it specifically. You can't serve two masters. You can't love money and God. What was the rich man's primary sin? That he didn't accept Yeshua as Messiah? What was his primary sin? What did he do wrong? He did not care for the underprivileged. He allowed him to sit at his gate where he passed day after day with dogs licking his blisters and boils and did nothing. And he had everything, right? He had everything. He showed no regard for his fellow man. They needed, these Pharisees needed the message of the kingdom. When Yeshua says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. First lesson. That's from Matthew, but this is from Luke, and Yeshua is talking to the Pharisees, and what's he telling them? You need the weightier matters. Loving money? You need mishpat, you need chesed, you need emunah, you need justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And how much were those things missing in the rich man's behavior? All of them were missing, right? And this is very familiar territory for Yeshua. I do believe... And this may be a little controversial, I don't know. 
I do believe that Yeshua has something to say in this parable about life after death. I'm not removing all of that. But you want to know what I think the primary thing he's saying about life after death in this parable has less to do with Abraham's bosom and more to do with what you do on this side of the grave. Just like Gildenhoys said. Just like he said. It was a great line. There is an undeniable connection between actions in this life and in the next life. Oh. I've just heard the rabbi utter legalism. We, I, honey, I think he's saying we can be saved by works. That was a dramatic pause, just to really finish it. Did you get it? <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm not in any way saying that. Simmer down. The New Testament repeatedly discusses over and over and over and over and over again, out of the mouth of Messiah Yeshua, the power of a life well lived on this side of Sheol. Right? Is that deniable? Of course it's not. We don't need to complicate this. We don't even have to argue about it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Matthew 16, for the Son of Man is going to come in glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay every person according to his deeds. Wow. It's interesting to note that Yeshua mentions Gehenna 11 times, twice to the Pharisees, the other times to his own disciples. Telling them, don't do these things, or you'll find yourself somewhere you don't want to be. Don't call your brother good for nothing. You'll go to Gehenna. Treat the little ones kindly. You don't want to go to Gehenna. Yeshua primarily uses Gehenna and eternal destiny to reinforce his appeal for personal self-discipline and obedience. You hear that? So it's nicely phrased. I like it. Jesus never talks about the danger of hell to people other than his followers. His teaching always warns you, whether Pharisee, scribe, or disciple. I like that. That's from Strawson, Jesus and the Future Life, a book from the 40s. He had it going on. The greatest mistake, in my opinion, one of the greatest mistakes when it comes to Yeshua's teaching is to dismiss it as a consistent focus on what's next. Going to heaven, which we've talked so much about, or even going to hell. I mean, as if in any way here he's talking about going to heaven. There is, we know without a shadow of a doubt, a greater thing ahead of us as followers of Yeshua. A whole new world, as Aladdin sang. If Yeshua is your covering, right? Talk about it. Resurrection. Everlasting life ahead of those who have faithfulness in Yeshua. But as John told the Pharisees, we read it today. Shelley read it from the gospel. Bear fruit consistent with repentance. That means here, right? His consistent message over and over to the disciples, to the crowd, to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the Sadducees, to the point of his parables so often, repentance in this life. 
repentance. It's like the primary thing about this parable. Repentance. What does the man want for his brothers? What does he want them to do? He wants them to turn from their evil ways, as they say. What does it mean? How do we say turn in Hebrew? Shuv. What is, to, what is repentance? Tshuva. To turn. That's what he's begging that Abraham will let happen. That the brothers will be able to return. Joachim Jeremias, another great philosopher, he said, this, this parable, I mean, um, theologian, very, very well respected. Don't agree with everything he says, but he's a brilliant genius, Jeremiah. He says, this parable is incorrectly named. It shouldn't be the rich man and the brothers. It should be the six, I mean, the rich man and Lazarus. It should be the six brothers. That's the point. The point of repentance and being aware of the fact that, yes, the Torah does teach you. It does teach you what you should and should not do, and that matters on this side of the grave. Abraham, come on, fix it. Fix it, Abraham. I can't. The Torah has taught them what they need to know, and they have disregarded it. And it's too late. Priority one of this parable, repentance. That's the rich man's deepest desire. Deepest desire. The details about Sheol and burning and dry tongues are incidental to the message. Sort of like, you know, all of the stuff. Yeshua uses this parable and it's like, yeah, all, all the stuff that the rabbis and all we learn about and talk about in terms of Sheol. Yeah, that's all in there. But repentance. Live good. Live well. I'm sorry to use proper. Let me use proper English. Live well. Live goodly. (laughs) Now, don't think for one millisecond moment that I'm suggesting that our merits, our works, our deeds carry the weight of getting us into the kingdom and ultimately into the world to come. I am in no way suggesting that our righteousness of doing great things is enough. But I am suggesting it's something. Because I'm suggesting that Yeshua says that, and that's a large part of this parable. Now, you know, maybe, maybe the rich man may have been a tax collector for all we know. But what if he was a holy man? What if he was a well-to-do priest in the aristocracy? Well-versed in what should have been done, and yet... It brings to mind Mark 7 about the internal. What's inside of you matters. Not what you do outside so much. It's coming from inside. Matthew 23, I talked about, you know, the respecting rabbinic tradition and authority. But Yeshua does say this. The scribes, as he speaks to the crowds and disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they've seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, whatever they tell you, do and comply with it all. But we can't stop there, can we? Because he goes on to say, But do not do as they do, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as their finger. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. 
This rich man may have had everything going for him on the outside, every I dotted, every T crossed. But on the inside, he was filthy and had no idea. There's a great context that I think this is, this is important. Also, another great New Testament scholar, Joseph Fitzmaier, gives some context for that really weird thing we read before about mammon of wrongdoing or mammon of dishonesty. We don't really find that usage in mainstream Semitic literature. There is something in Qumran, in the Essene catalog of literature, we have wealth of violence, wealth of evil. Remember, our term is mammon of dishonesty. But in no context where we do find that wealth of violence, wealth of evil, it's not that they, it's not ill-gotten. It's not that they killed somebody to get it or anything like that, that they robbed somebody. But rather, it is defining material possessions. Mammon of dishonesty, wealth of violence, wealth of evil. They are, they are defining material possessions. Why give them that label? What's wrong with having some money? Well, the idea is that it can entice and lead one to abandon Torah in favor of wealth. In other words, the wealth of wrongdoing translates Delich. And that's why it's so relevant that Yeshua says you can't serve God and mammon. Mammonah in Aramaic, money. You can't do that. Purchase friends for yourself with the mammon of wrongdoing so that when it is finished, they will take you into eternal dwellings. That's a weird thing, isn't it? Purchase friends with the mammon of wrongdoing so that when it's over, when it runs out, they will take you into eternal dwellings. What in the world does that mean? Well, Delich notes that the third person plural, they, so that they will take you into eternal dwellings, uh, complicated, without an antecedent, is often an indirect way of referring to God. So even more Purchase friends with the mammon of wrongdoing so that in the end, God will take you into eternal dwellings. It's getting weirder, not clearer, right? What's it mean? Well, what's the whole context of our parable about? Money, wealth, serving mammon over God. The translation is actually very easy. Use material wealth for eternal gains. You might have heard Yeshua say this in a different way. What, how do you think he phrased that? It's if you just let your mind go one other place. Use material wealth for eternal gains. You remember when he said, store up for yourself treasures in God. He doesn't mean a literal place in heaven. Store up for yourself treasures in God. Use money to secure eternal gains. Well, Yeshua would never say that. That's, that seems ich, gross. Ich. 
Do you remember what Yeshua said when he commissioned his disciples? He said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. I want you to be, he said, wise as serpents. He would tell you that. He would. And the dishonest manager rewarded this guy. The manager rewarded him for his cunning. It's still weird. I get it. There are some weird things. Store up treasures in heaven. What is the prudent use of dishonest mammon? The mammon of wrongdoing. What is the prudent use of your money? One huge part would be to have helped Eleazar. For the rich man to have taken the mammon of wrongdoing, however he got it, the mammon of dishonesty, whatever you want to call it, and used it to help, and therefore store up for himself eternal treasures in God. And that puts this entire context of the parable of Abraham's bosom right with the whole chapter of Luke, right? Rich man, rich man, money, lovers of money, God, mammon, store up good things with money. It's that easy. It's very clear. Context. It's a good friend. So it turns out we get very little insight on our topic of heaven and hell from this oh-so-famous parable of Yeshua. This is much to the dismay of many who want to use it as a picture of going to heaven to float on the clouds or burning in hell with Satan. But we definitely get a lot out of it, even if it's not about that, don't we? It's been one of the most compelling parts of anything I've gathered from this series, as a matter of fact, so far is how absolutely important it is, particularly in our country, of great and extravagant wealth, to always be willing to help, and never knowing what you are storing up for yourselves later. Or not, as the case may be. You can't have both. That's what Yeshua says. When the rich man would have chosen service to Eleazar over the banquets and fine robes, in essence, he is serving God. Does that sound familiar? It's the great, great, and we will spend time talking about it soon, I promise you. It's the greatest text out of the mouth of Yeshua that promotes and is used to defend the idea of eternal punishment. It's Matthew 25 where Yeshua says, Come on in, sheep and goats, right? Sheep to the right, goats to the left. Come on in, you sheep. What you did for the least of these, you did for me. There's nothing in there about salvation. What you did for the least of these, when you fed them, you clothed them, you did these kind of things, you did it for me. In essence, what he's saying is, if Eleazar had used his material wealth, I mean, if the rich man had helped Eleazar with his material wealth, he would have been helping God in essence. And to the goats on the left, he says, you didn't do a doggone thing. Enter into darkness and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth and the eternal fire and the punishment and all that good Christian stuff. <laughs> and so let's close this. 
What have we learned about the parable of Abraham's bosom? First off, it's a parable. It's not literal. It's in line with the rest of Yeshua's teaching throughout the New Testament. Repent, 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 for the kingdom is coming. Repent. Today, not tomorrow. Live this life on earth like the kingdom is already here. Care for your fellow man. That is a component of the kingdom. We've learned at least a little bit about potential destinations after death. A little bit. At least temporary ones. That is until the resurrections happens, both the first and the second resurrection, which apostolic theology tells us will happen. And considering that Yeshua did not discard this Pharisaic description of Sheol, of Hades, of Gehenna, of of Paradise, as a matter of fact, by referencing it in the parable, he gives a certain stamp of approval. Now, to quote something like that is not to say wholehearted agreement. We need to be fair about that. But it certainly is not a rejection of it either. So we see a description of the afterlife, including a soul that is conscious after death, a soul with a post-mortem experience. We see this conscious after death, not a floating mist or asleep, recognizing others with the memories of past life. That's what we see in this story. We learn that this picture, that this picture holds some application for even now. Right now, that is, Abraham, David, Aaron, and a whole host of people are probably, or at least might be, resting in paradise at this very moment. We learned that. We talked about it last week. We know that the wicked or selfish or stingy or many other words may be looking for water to quench a thirst of the fire of Gehenna on the tongue. These are all the things that we learned. But what we have not learned is what's really important. We don't really know the end of the story. We don't know anything more from any of this about the end. What's the climax? We've learned about Sheol, Gehenna, now something about Abraham's bosom. But what about the final fate of the righteous and the wicked? What about hell? The real hell. What about it? The one we're told will hold all those who don't confess Yeshua as Lord in eternal conscious torment for eternity. Where is that? Where did it come from? How did that become the prevalent understanding from what we have already learned so far? How did we get there? Or better phrase, I'm going to ask you this. Should we have gotten there? It is the final judgment And there is much, much, much to be said about resurrection, about judgment, about eternity. And so, you'll be happy to know that we are rounding the corner to the home stretch of, is our hope in heaven? We're rounding the corner. But I'm going to do this. With God's help... We're going to finish and answer those questions and talk about the most controversial, like we may not even be able to keep our doors open afterwards, kind I'm kidding. 
<laughs> we're going to jump into this stuff about the real hell, judgment, eternal fire, punishment, conscious torment. And it's going to take us right up to the high holidays, Yom Kippur. You know, Yom Kippur, the day when the books are opened, the books of life, the book of life, I should say, the book of death, and the book of in-between. Repentance and penitence are that day's theme. And all this fire and brimstone and gnashing of teeth that we're going to cover might make this the most compelling Yom Kippur you have ever had in your life. You ready for that? I am too. Shabbat Shalom.